It wasn't a rat, okay? Look at this. There's a weird mark on the back of my neck. It happened near that old refrigerator. Refrigerator? Howdy, cowboys. How are y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Colin Tanner. And I'm Steve Cuff. And every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, we have an announcement. Next week, we're doing Jupiter Jazz, which you might not know, but I know is a two-part episode. Oh, is it now? Yes! Which means you actually have to watch both episodes back-to-back. Because that's what we're going to do for the show. We're going to actually cover Jupiter Jazz Part 1 and Part 2 in a single episode. Uh, double whammy. Colin, you know my time is finite. I don't have I don't have the bandwidth for this right now. The time is finite. It's all finite for all of us. We're all going to die someday. That's true. Might as well be in the bebop in outer space. I got to admit, I was really excited to watch this episode because I thought... Steve is going to have some opinions. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do. An all-time classic, in, in my humble opinion. And we're going to find out what Steve thinks, because of course he's never watched Cowboy Bebop before. But before we do that, we have to do a little bit of Bebop history. And this week, we're talking about the voice actor of Spike Spiegel himself, Steve Bloom. Now, Steve, before you watched Cowboy Bebop, had you ever heard Steve Bloom's voice before? Did you recognize it? No. Really? No. I mean, if you were to say, oh, he was this thing and this thing, I'd probably go... Yeah, he was, but I I never, like, when I hear his voice, I didn't immediately think of anything. Well, Steve Bloom, a.k.a. David Lucas, a.k.a. Andrew Walton, a.k.a. Roger Canfield, a.k.a. Daniel Andrews, more on that later, was born on April 29th, 1960 in Santa Monica, California. Funny enough, we're going to be talking about Santa Monica later in the episode for a specific reason. Because it's your favorite song by the band Everclear? That's where they make God of War, my favorite video game series. Well, Steve grew up, uh, Steve Bloom, I want to specify, we're not talking about Steve Cuff, who is on the podcast right now. Hello. Well, Steve grew up as your average child of the 1960s. Throughout his childhood, he was obsessed with brand new characters of Marvel Comics. No, because, of course, the 616 universe is when all the big Marvel comics happen. That's when, like, Fantastic Four and the Hulk and all these characters, Steve Bloom, huge fan. And by the time he reached adolescence, Steve sought out and started watching the burgeoning new film genre known as Kung Fu Movies. In fact, he idolized Bruce Lee. What a dink. So he was in California. That must have been where the Kung Fu films kind of got started, right? Well, no, they got started in China, but... <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You, you mean, like, where their popularity sort of rose up? I would actually argue that they, they were probably a lot more popular on the East Coast because the New York, Manhattan, Grindhouse scene was pretty popular over there and that's that's where you saw a lot of kung fu movies, it's where you saw a lot of horror and exploitation, a lot of the sexy films that you're into, uh, yeah, stuff like that. You're telling me they got, all the way in California, they got Chinatown, they're not getting these Chinese movies. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, you know, Colin, you disgusting racist, they have Chinatowns all over the continental United States. Everywhere is China. But think about this for just a moment. Steve Bloom, he's going to grow up and he's going to be a person that does voices for dub. And there he is is as a kid growing up watching these kung fu movies with really bad dub. Kind of ironic. Or actually, it's coincidental. That would not be irony. The more you know. <laughs> Seriously. Now, here's the thing about Steve Bloom. He's a very private person. So, uh, basically, his childhood to his adulthood, we don't know what happened in between, much like Jesus Christ. And then on his 33rd birthday, he was crucified. <laughs> yeah. But he took his love of creativity and acting, and he became a materials supervisor for Full Moon Entertainment for several of their movies. Steve, are you aware of Full Moon Entertainment? They seem right up your alley. Very aware. Uh, That's Richard and Charles Band, uh, makers of Puppet Master. Oh, jeez. Dollman. Dollman, Demonic Toys, Dollman versus Demonic Toys, the Tracer series. Not Tracer Part 1, ironically, which, uh, of course, has a lot of actual actors in it, but 2 through 6, they're Mm -hmm. all over it. Yeah, that's that's their wheelhouse. They also did Evil Bong. Oh, I've seen that. That's good. Well, no, it wasn't. But yeah, they uh, they also did Ginger Dead Man starring Gary Busey. That is my personal favorite, actually, of their entire bunch. 
Because he dies in the beginning. It's a little bit like uh, Child's Play. I think. Yeah, it's pretty much Child's Play, but Gary Busey as a talking gingerbread man puppet. I do not recall any sort of Christmas iconography in that entire film, so I don't know why it was called Gingerbread Man. Anyway, Steve Bloom was basically the head of marketing, but he couldn't stand working with people that ran Full Moon Entertainment because they were basically trying to screw everyone else. That's a direct quote, uh, especially when it came to paying vendors. But of course, there's plenty of fly-by-night horror movie directors in California that just will not pay their actors or their lighting people, all that kind of stuff. He would take phone call after phone call of these people looking for their money and just start to get to them. He couldn't handle it anymore. And you might assume after all of this, he would finally pursue his dream of acting. But no, that's not what happened. Uh, That was actually never really a goal of his. Even though he really liked acting, he just didn't think that was going to happen. So instead, he would hang out in the break room and the mail room and do weird voices. What a creep. Now, considering that schlock films of the 80s and early 90s and English anime dubs were actually kind of in the same circle, aka they didn't pay all that well, word got out that Steve could do goofy voices. And so he was hired to do a few voices on Giver, all of which were creatures that were hissing or melting or dying. <laughs> By the way, Guyver is not a good anime, though it did receive two live-action uh, American adaptations. Yeah, it did. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah, they of are course. Not, are, is that Full Moon Entertainment, you think? I don't believe Full Moon produced them, but they are pretty low budget. Uh, they're, they're very gory. Oh, yeah. Especially the first one. Very, very gory movie. Just like the anime, actually. But uh, Mark Hamill's in one of them. That was during the doldrums of his career. Yeah, he's the bad guy in the second one. <laughs> not a good movie. Now, funny enough, when Steve was doing the voices for Guyver, he would meet Melissa Fawn, who would later go on to do the voice of Ed on Cowboy Bebop. Now, we could move right along and follow the rest of his career, but we need to talk about this very first recording session because you need to understand how bad anime used to be. <laughs> During this recording session, they had to carry all of this equipment up to a treehouse that was soundproofed. <laughs> like, you know, some kid's backyard, and they're just putting all this sound equipment in there, like thousands upon thousands of dollars. And the guy that was running it was actually hanging by his knees on the tree trimming the tree with a chainsaw. So they're recording stuff, and there's a chainsaw going on, and the entire time they're recording, and they had to throw away everything that they recorded. Just how stupid is that? That's kind of ridiculous. Anyway, they had to redo everything, obviously, and the redos were done in Les Claypool's garage. Now, it's possibly due to this embarrassing amateurish recording process that Steve never considered himself an actor, even after finishing Cowboy Bebop. He told the director, Mary Elizabeth McGillan, that he wasn't an actor. McGillan gave him a piece of advice. She said, stop saying that, or I'm going to kick you in the balls. That's fair. Would you say that he sounds like a, at least a professional actor at the very least? Yeah. No, I think he's very good at voice acting. He's he's good at what he does. Although, I also think it's fair that he doesn't consider himself an actor in the traditional sense because he's never done live action acting, has he? Mm, I think maybe later he did. Mm-hmm. Later he did. Well, at this point in his career, at least. Because that's, that's more than just, you know, reading lines. But it's also understandable why Mary Elizabeth McGillan was frustrated that he wouldn't call himself an actor. Because she saw him in the booth acting out fight scenes. You know, pretending to have a cigarette in his mouth by sticking a pen in his mouth. Like, he did everything. Now, this is all while he was staying on mic. And I cannot stress this. This is what makes him so impressive. He's moving around throwing fake punches while still hitting all of his cues into the microphone. Because, of course, they don't just, like, splice your voice into anime. You actually have to talk while the lips are moving. It's crazy. This is back in the day, of course. Now, following Cowboy Bebop, Steve became one of the most prolific voice actors ever, even holding the record for performances in video games. But if you haven't noticed his name in the credits, that's because he's usually under a number of aliases to avoid being penalized by the union of the 90s. So that's why I went by David Lucas for Cowboy Bebop. And speaking of unions, he actually became a spokesperson for SAG-AFTRA during the strikes in 2016. And he's an advocate for video game voice acting royalties. Now, we could do an entire podcast on Steve Bloom. He's done everything from Naruto to Ben 10, Mass Effect, and and has played Wolverine on a number of occasions. That's Marvel's Wolverine, which must be kind of like a dream come true for him. But perhaps his most important role outside of Cowboy Bebop is as Tom, the robot who hosted Toonami on Cartoon Network, which introduced a generation to shows like Tenchi Muyo, Dragon Ball Z, Outlaw Star, and, uh, Hamtaro. 
show about hamsters. Personal favorite of yours? No, it's actually when I stopped watching Toonami. Did you ever watch Tommy back in the day? No, I'm not an anime nerd. We've established that. That's why I'm on the show. <clears throat> All right, fine. Fair enough. Let's just move along. Now, in the mid-2000s, Steve Bloom separated from his wife. Why are we putting that in this? Oh, we should take that detail out. Yeah, way to go, dick. No, no, there's a reason. There's a reason. Since then, he's become engaged to the director of Kobe Bebop, Mary Elizabeth McGillan. And the two travel around to anime conventions and perform singing duets, and they fucking love each other. Like, every photo, they are so cute. But let's close out this segment with one of Steve Bloom's quotes about his life and where he came from. Here's what he said, quote, I've worked some pretty awful jobs throughout the years, everything from servicing fire extinguishers in the gutters of downtown LA to taking my boss's dogs to be de-skunked and living with the smell of my truck for months. There was a part of me that misses the civilian life, but I don't miss sitting in an office every day. That was something I did for 15 years. For the most part, I have the best job in the whole world. I usually go to several studios in a day, I have a home recording booth, and sometimes I do auditions from there. Which is nice, because I can save myself countless hours of driving and do auditions in my underwear at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm grateful every single day. And here's the one detail I kind of wanted to mention. Steve Bloom was in his mid-30s by the time he finished Cowboy Bebop, so he is a latecomer to acting. But all in all, so far, Steve, do you like Steve Bloom's performance in Cowboy Bebop? Yeah, I think he's great. I think he really nails the, the feeling of Spike, that kind of grittiness that Spike has, but still there's some vulnerability there. And yeah, I, I think he reads the character really well, and yeah, it's just a... Good performance overall. Let's just cut right to the chase. He has a fantastic voice. What kind of voice is that? I've never heard anything like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if you're into anime dubs, you know, like, oh, there must be a bunch of people that have these cool, deep-throated voices. Nope, that basically just Steve Bloom. Well, okay, there's a few more. Now, fun fact about today's episode that we're going to be watching, this is the only episode starring the five main characters all together. They all have major performances because we've got Ein, Spike, Faye, Ed, and Jet. They even perform a live reading at some conventions. And now we have covered the main cast. We have Wendy Lee, Bo Billingsley, Melissa Fawn, and Steve Bloom. How cool is that? Now, normally, this is the part of the show where Steve tells us where the title comes from, but this week's going to be slightly different, because for some reason, the title is completely different in Japanese than is in the English version. So instead of Toys in the Addict, it's known as Heavy Rock and the Dark Knight, which has no relation to any other song. And this is the only episode where they do that. Isn't that kind of weird? That is kind of odd. Do you think Aerosmith is not very popular in Japan? Maybe, but some of their other choices have been pretty esoteric too, so I still don't understand why they wouldn't use the same reference. Well, I just said it. Steve, what is Toys in the Attic? Toys in the Attic is the third studio album, I believe, from the band Aerosmith. It was released in 1975. It is... One of their best-selling albums, I think it's right up there with Rocks as their best-selling album. As far as, like, critically acclaimed albums, it's, again, right up there with Rocks as their most critically acclaimed album. It has the hit single Sweet Emotion on it, and it was kind of their breakout album. They had two records before that. They had their debut, which had Dream On, uh, that later became a hit, but not until much, much later. That's the com most confusing thing to me, is I thought Dream On was this album. Like, when I think Toys in the Attic, Dream On is the first thing I think of... Uh -uh. That was, that was a single that was released for some reason, like, two years after Toys in the Attic, because... But it was released beforehand, and then re-released? Re-released as a single, yeah. Wow. And then this the second album, I don't even remember what's on the second album. I think the biggest hit on that was, like, Train Kept a Rollin' or something, which, again, is one of those songs where it was never a hit when it initially came out, but then through the magic of Guitar Hero and shitty classic rock radio, it became a hit. Yeah. But yeah, Toys in the Attic. It's got Sweet Emotion. It's got Walk This Way, but not the version with Run DMC. It's got some other songs 
on it. It's fine. Is that really all you got for me? It's fine. It's fine. It is. It is like the Mendoza line for '70s rock records. I, I'm. I've never been a huge Aerosmith fan. Like I said, this along with rocks are clearly their two biggest achievements in their career. And even with that as the qualifier, I've never said to myself, boy, howdy, I just want to throw on Toys in the Attic right now. Let's also talk for a moment about the song Toys in the Attic, which, of course, is the opener to the entire uh, album. Let me just say this real quick. 1975, punk has yet to go mainstream. If you heard this, it must have been pretty cool because it sounds like a smaller group that's really getting kind of thrashy, almost like a really early Guns N' Roses album. So I don't know. I think I can understand why people cared about it. Sure, and they were seen as like a more rowdy and American version of of Led Zeppelin. Is that right? Yeah, especially when you look at their first record. Their entire first record just sounds like they're trying to sound like Led Zeppelin. And to a degree, they definitely were. But yeah, they, they sort of embody this uh, cleaned up 70s rock sound. So somewhere between Cheap Trick and Led oh. Zeppelin lies mid-1970s Aerosmith. As an insult to Cheap Trick to even bring their name up. They're a great rock and roll band. I-, I think they fit into this category pretty well. And also we're talking about another band in Cheap Trick who's career, while while you may laud them and say that they are great, which they are, they put out some great albums in the 1970s and the early 1980s, holy shit, they've put out a lot of records and most of them are bad. And Aerosmith can say the same. I mean, there's not a lot of people that are standing around defending Just Press Play or, oh god, what's the one with the cow udders on it? Get a Grip, I think it's called, or Nine Lives, or there's just so many bad things they've done. Does anyone really like the song Love in an Elevator? I don't. Ooh, I kind of do like that song. Oh my god. Next thing you're going to tell me is you like the song Pink. Not really. But crying? Yeah, I'll take some crying. It's, it's like, here, here's the thing. I, whenever I hear that music, I have like a Pavlovian response. Like I need to be, it's having Applebee's eating ribs. That is exactly the kind of music that you listen to. It's <laughs> deeply upsetting. <laughs> well, since the song was released back on the album, it has been covered by a number of really, really good bands. First of all, R.E.M. covered it. R.E.M. is a great group. Why do they care about this? When did they release the cover? Oh, it was very early on, mid-80s. Okay. And of course, the song was covered by Rat. And they all kind of sound the same, actually. No one really does anything dramatic with Toys in the Attic. They just sound like they're doing a live version of Toys in the Attic. Aerosmith. They're fine. I still like Jaded. Oh, I love it. That is a horrible song and a horrible opinion. Oh, my God. You're sinking the reputation of this podcast. Now, Steve... Toys in the Attic, episode 11, when did it air? I'm so glad you asked, Colin. It aired on TV Tokyo, May 15th, 1998, on my favorite TV channel, Wow Wow, on January 2nd, 1999, and on Adult Swim, October 7th, 2001, which is just in time for Halloween season. How apropos. I mean, this is kind of a a horror-themed episode of sorts. But before we get to that, let's talk about who wrote it. Michiko Yote, one of my favorite writers, of course. Keep mentioning this. Stray Dog Strut, Battle of Fallen Angels, Heavy Metal Queen, and Waltz for Venus. Every time we see that name, we know it's going to be a good episode. Wouldn't you agree at this point? No, yeah, she's done some good work. She! She's done some good work. Sorry. Yo, you don't know any Michikos in your life? No, I've never met a Michiko. No, it was directed by Kunihiro Mori, the director of Honky Tonk Women. Honky Tonk Women. Can I say I have no idea how the hell that episode happened now watching this one? I don't want to show my cards too much, but if you've listened to episode three of Wulong Club, you are well aware that I was not a fan of uh, episode three, just from a directing standpoint, like just misusing animation budget and all sorts of things. But I guess maybe now we can officially blame Bandai Toys because these are very, very, very different eras with very different focuses. No spaceships in this episode. Well, I mean, 
you see the exterior shot, but that doesn't really count. The opening of this episode is demonstrably different from anything else that we've seen in Cowboy Bebop so far. We get this kind of like point of view shot in the beginning, and it's it's super dark and kind of like tainted red in a way. Oh yeah, like a night and vision. And yeah, we hear this like whooshing sound, and the camera's kind of like crawling through this tunnel, and we're getting the, the first person look at it. And it's pretty cool because it is very reminiscent of Evil Dead. I don't know if you remember when the when the you know the deadite spirit is flying through the forest and you get that and then you just see the the first person camera view kind of flying through uh that's that's what it kind of looks like but with this red filter over it so immediately all of my horror alarms mm-hmm, went off like mm-hmm. okay this is this is what we're doing i, I just want to bring this up real quick uh, we're gonna be talking about sam raimi later do you think oh we, probably we sure. haven't discussed we haven't shared our thoughts on this episode but there were a couple of scenes where went, that's sam raimi they took that from sam raimi mm-hmm. you'll find out later in the episode listener this is one of those intros seriously that only works if you watch Cowboy View up up until now i mean of course if you watch it like any other tv show it's still a really good intro but it's that so different from everything else we've seen we don't see any of the characters in fact you don't really see anything it's hard to see mm-hmm we get another first time thing in, in this episode too, right in the beginning. We hear an internal monologue for the first time to kind of kick this one off. So after we see the camera sort of flying through what looks like the ductwork of the bebop, we have Jet's internal monologue and he's sort of like explaining to us that, you know, the bounty hunter life is, is not so glamorous and it often leads to these long stretches of being broke and bored. And then all of a sudden we get another thing that we've never had in Cowboy Bebop before, which is like these lessons that come with their own little like title card. So it's like lesson one, when you're out of money, you start thinking of quick cash. Uh, And yeah, we just get this like little card that tells us the lesson that we're learning. It's, It's all very irreverent and in line with the spirit of Cowboy Bebop, but these are all things that we have not seen before. You know what I love about those those cute, those cards, though? This is a really small touch, and if you're into video production, this is one of those things that you just kind of notice. Lesson has two red S's, and they fade in after everything else fades in. It's just a small touch that really kind of draws your eye to read faster. Also, really important, when he's doing that mala, we're seeing a bunch of different uh, static shots. We're seeing a pile of cigarettes. Ed is sleeping on top of an air duct, and we see the ceiling fan rotating, which is the exact same animation taken from episode 5, Battle of Fallen Angels, when Spike wakes up and he's looking at the ceiling fan. So they just took that and they reused it, which is really thrifty and smart. So this monologue is going on and we're just sort of seeing day-to-day life of this of the Bebop crew. And this includes, of course, Spike is making kebabs with a flamethrower, as one often does. And then we see Faye and, and Chet doing some sort of like gambling of, of some sort, they're like a dice game. They're, uh, they're playing, I looked this up, they're playing Chosan, which is a Japanese game which has two die or, or dice however you pronounce that, and they're being thrown into a cup and they have to guess if it's odd or even. They became hugely popular in gambling dens and resulted in a number of cheating devices like we'll see later in the episode. In fact, there's a sub-story in the video game series Yakuza where someone has a dice that has little needles that poke out automatically, which apparently is based off of something real. Interesting. That's a pretty easy game. You don't don't have to be a smart person to figure that game out. You got 50-50 chance. The other thing that we get here for the first time is implied penis because Jet is literally losing everything that he has in this dice game and yet he keeps playing even though Faye is clearly cheating and he knows that she's a cheater like this is what she does she's literally known as a, a, a cheating gambling woman and yet here he is playing dice against her so he loses like a gun a bunch of other stuff and all of his clothes so then at the end I, I think she says well I'd prefer cash and then he just takes off his boxers and tosses them over and then Spike walks in with his little flamethrower kebabs just like ugh 
Uh. But nobody's not like, uh. That's what I love about that scene is he walks in, he's he's disgusted that he, he was gambling, not that he's naked. Oh. He's like, oh, I can't believe you actually fell for this trick because Spike, of course, knows because he was with uh, Faye in episode three and he knew that she was cheating the entire time. Whereas Jed is more trusting and he just falls for this. So Spike's like, whatever, I don't care that you're naked, but you gambled with Faye? How stupid are you? Well, and Colin, because you are a crazy person, you actually compiled a list of everything that he lost yes. in the game. What did he lose? So here's what Jet spent in the gambling game. He lost his shotgun, a grenade round, sniper rounds, a handgun, his radio cell phone thing, which uh, he uses from time to time. Or maybe it's the thing that connects to the goggles later on. I'm not sure. He has a stockpile of books. I wonder what he was reading. Pistol rounds, a lighter, that transfer card thing that we saw in Walt Venus, two unrecognizable boxes, and his goddamn bonsai tree. He's giving away his bonsai tree. That's unbelievable. That's just sad. Actually, in the far, far, far away shot, we can see that he has his uh, light tan overcoat and hat as well, which we won't see for many, 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 many episodes. That's an alternative costume. So they really were thinking ahead when they were doing this. And I think Faye at some point, it might be right after this or a little bit later in the episode, uh, Spike is like, you know, why did you do that to him? Aren't you going to at least let him keep his clothes? And she's just like, ah, I'll rent them to him. <laughs> It's so mean. She's a horrible person. Yeah, she's kind of a dick. We're getting yet another shot, just to remind you that there's something in the tunnel, something crawling around with these creepy sound effects, and it's chasing after a, a rat, and there's even a steam valve that starts leaking, and, and Ein's freaking out, and he starts barking. Steve, what did you think it was? At this point, you haven't seen it yet, what did you think it was going to be? Well, it's clearly Space Monster. I had the same reaction that Ed had. Did you really? Yeah, absolutely. All the clues point to Space Monster. Uh, we follow Jet into the storage area. He's naked, of course, but he wraps himself in a blanket, and then he spots an unusual refrigerator. Now, Steve, you watch a lot of horror movies. This is what always happens. Someone confuses a device for something else when it's really a secret object. When he saw this refrigerator, do you th did you think it was going to be a fridge, or did you think it was going to be like a reveal at the end that it was some sort of secret alien device? No, I figured it was a fridge. <laughs> I mean, he's, it's his ship. He knows it. I guess he was kind of miffed by the fact that it was there and he didn't recognize it. Although, by all accounts, it doesn't seem like people spend a lot of time in this area of the ship. And that was the part that weirded me out. It's just like, you don't know this fridge is here. What the hell are you even doing down here? That's true. And uh, clearly, it's an uncomfortable place to be. Like, he's cold. He's sneezing. He's, like, wrapped in a blanket naked. Why did you go down to what is essentially, like, a storage room? Maybe he was just ashamed. He wanted to go to the darkest place in the bebop. Maybe he, could, maybe he was looking for clothes down there. I don't know. Oh, that's a good point. Point, that is. I mean, when you check his room first, where he's got one outfit. Actually, I take that back. Of course, he only has one outfit. Now, I have a theory about this next scene because, of course, Jet gets bit by something and then he falls on the ground. But before he sees the fridge, we see him sneezing. Now, he does mention that's cold and maybe that's why he sneezes. But I'm starting to think that maybe he was sick before this whole incident. Hear me out on that. You know, maybe he got the flu. No. That's oh, not even close. Come on. Absolutely not Why in a million sneezing? years. One, it undermines the entire fucking thing. Two, he's sneezing because it's literally cold, which he comments on and then sneezes. How many times do you sneeze because it was cold? Now, I see a bright light, I sneeze. When it's cold, I'm like, whatever. It's it's visual shorthand for cold. That's what it means, sniffling and sneezing. And the blanket wasn't going to get that across? Three, three, if it was the flu, uh -huh. why does everybody drop dead like the moment they get bit? That's a weird coincidence to happen to three other people on this ship. Colin Tanner with his crazy fan theories. You know, actually, I do take it back because Ayn gets sick. No, because Ayn gets bit and he's a small creature. So maybe he has a little bit of the virus. I'm standing by this. That is literally the worst theory I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, really think about it for a second, though. It's just a, it's just purple marks. They could be residue. 
You know? No, they they are. It's a result of the bites. But, but look who's doing the virus checking anyway. It's Spike. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not a smart guy. Spike is not a genius, even with technology. You know? But Ed also takes a look at it. Eh, it's crazy. All right, so we get to our second lesson here. Not a good is, lesson, by the way. Which not is Faye's lesson, and her lesson is. Uh, don't trust anyone and uh, just always attempt to swindle and steal from everyone else. Because they're going to get you eventually. Yeah, so you got to get them first. It's a really lonely, sad way to live your life. That's PTSD, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. But this is also the scene where Spike realizes what's going on with the bracelet. And just a small touch, just something I think is great for the directing. He's brushing his teeth. Just a small touch. He could have just walked in the room and done nothing. But no, they had him actually already busy and occupied doing something else. This is also where we learn that there's uh, another thing in the Bebop ship, an alarm that will take you directly to to the right room where the person pulls the alarm. Spike runs along. Ayn runs along. Adorable, of course. And Faye runs along. Why is she Why is she running into danger? We just learned her lesson. I'm not sure. That's <laughs> you know a good what question. Mean? It's not very characteristic of her. I guess she just wants to check out the action, you know? She wants to laugh. Laugh at his nudity. Yeah, and we see, uh, apparently, Jet has been bitten. They find Jet kind of lying on the, fro- on the floor, and he says, Oh, something bit me. Burr, burr, burr. Is that every Bebop character in your head? They, yeah, they pretty all much. Go, burr, burr, burr. Burr, burr, burr. Something bit me. And they see that it's... It's like a rat because Ayn is like freaking out and, and growling and stuff. So then everybody basically just laughs at Jet because he's sitting here naked with a blanket wrapped around him and something bites his neck. Well, let's talk about that for a moment there. Ayn, good boy Ayn. We haven't seen him growl since he met Akeem in episode two. He, he's so tense in this. And, and I love the animation of him. It's like the fur going up and him growling. Poor Ayn. I'm sure that will factor into your inometer later on in the episode. Oh, absolutely. The next scene is, without a doubt, my favorite scene in the entire episode, where Spike is trying to help Jet with his sickness. And he has a bunch of herbal medicine, is what he calls it, which is just like bullshit homeopathy. It works on everything but nearsightedness and cavities. Then it works on athlete's foot. Yeah, sure. Don't you have any real medicine that's just for sores and wounds? That would be this. Ugh, that heals wounds? Yep. You squish it up and boil it in three cups of water, and when it turns green and goopy, you drink it. Spike, isn't there something more, you know, different? Yeah, I got it. Yeah, give me that. I'll take the other thing. Bo Billingsley, my MVP. I love that performance so, so much. Oh, yeah, he's great. But, of course, Jet downs the drink, well, at least most of it, maybe just a sip of it, which, of course, used to be a lizard, before he falls flat on his face, succumbing to the deep purple bite on his neck. So, Colin, where do purple bite marks normally come from? Saturday night, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Hey, this guy. Well, if you don't have a space alien, you know, that's traveling through the ducts of your spaceship, the answer is the awful brown recluse spider. And if you get bit by one, then within 48 hours, your skin will take on a deep purpley look before bursting into a large ulcer. Oh. In some case, this necrotizing of the skin, oh. uh, oh. that's that's when your flesh is eaten away for you non-doctors. No, thank uh, you. It can lead to death. Not a fun fact. I'm sure there was someone out there that thought that was interesting, but that is uh, disturbing. So, Colin, if that description of symptoms makes you uncomfortable, then you know exactly how Jet feels in the next scene as Faye and Spike name off some of the terrible viruses that he might have. And you went through the legwork of actually looking them all up, didn't you? (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, of course, Jet is laying down there, and here are the viruses that they name off that make him incredibly uncomfortable. Well, the first is Cryptoplesium, which doesn't really exist. I googled it. There was just something wrong there. Maybe someone read the wrong line, or they mispronounced it in the booth. Who knows? But it doesn't exist. But Cryptosporidium does, which is what I think they were going for. And it will give you a terrible cough and pure liquid diarrhea. People from Milwaukee County will likely remember this, because over 4,000 people were treated for Cryptosporidium, and 69 people 
people died. Uh, actually, it's lethal for anyone with a compromised immune system, but uh, don't worry. In Milwaukee's case, it was only caused by deer shitting in the drinking water, which they still do to this day. Up next, we have cholera. Basically, it's the same deal, and it can be found in water, except this can kill in a manner of hours. Terrifying. Then there's Ebola, which, of course, we probably all remember from the past few years. Now, this one, personally, I'm going to say, not a good disease. Just my opinion. Ebola can cause internal bleeding, which is then vomited out. Half of all Ebola victims die. And the last is... Bifidobacterium? It's just normal bacteria. In fact, most newborns have it in their stomach. They're loaded with it. Now, I love this angle here where Ed and Faye are just hovering over Spike when he's trying to figure out what the virus is. They kind of look like a devil and an angel on his shoulder in a way. And when Ed lands right next to Spike, I actually jumped. It's actually kind of a jump scare where she appears out of nowhere because I don't think she said anything so far in the episode. And she's still relatively new to the series. And then we get that adorable shot of Ed picking up Ayn. So this is the, what is it, the third episode with Ed? So far, let me think about that. Episode 9, 10, 11. Yes, the third episode with Ed. How are you feeling about Ed so far? Ed is growing on me. Is it because she's uh, such a good buddy to uh, Ayn? That's part of it for sure. But also I see how her irreverence kind of fits in with the overall tone of Cowboy Bebop. So it, it works for me now. Plus it just looks so cute when she picks up Ayn. So right after Ed kind of shouts out what we're all thinking, that this is a horrific space monster that's causing this problem and not some known bacteria, we switch almost immediately to a bathtub scene, which is a very classic horror trope. So Faye is kind of chilling in a bathtub, which by the way, the Bebop has a fucking bathtub. Like a, It's like a clawfoot tub. In the Bebop. That doesn't make any sense well, so to me. So went back to 1920 to pick it up. And, uh, you know, out of nowhere, the creature kind of drops down from the vents. And then, you know, in classic horror fashion, Faye thinks she hears something. Kind of looks up at the fan or whatever. Then we get this long panning shot of her leg and her foot. Uh, you know, a real Tarantino move there. Did you think that was a little weird? When I was watching, I'm like, why are we focusing on her foot so much? Like, I know we're trying to get the perspective of the monster and where it's going to attack. Like, oh, no, no, put your foot yeah, back in the water. But yeah. it's like... I, no, it didn't bother me. Tarantino definitely fetishized his feet in his cinematography, but this is clearly like it's just signaling what's going to happen next. I would say it's one of the top five drawings of the entire series. Someone put a very lot of love into that foot. <laughs> you see all the details. So right after that, we don't actually see the bite, but Faye kind of bursts in right after that. And it's just like, hey, guess what? I got bitten too. Well, I love that she just, she she's talking around it kind of. She's like, I'm a good person. I haven't committed any crimes. Well, I haven't committed any serious crimes. Like she's having, I hate to use the term whenever we're discussing Cowboy Bebop, but she's having a bit of an existential crisis. Well, and this is a, a pretty classic trope in horror films, by the way, the bathtub scene. Uh, in Nightmare on Elm Street, there's the scene where, uh, you know, you have Freddy Krueger's claw kind of coming up through the water. In, I think, Slither is another one that I thought of. Ugh. That's from 2004, 2005, maybe. Yeah. And they have, like, the slugs kind of dropping in. And then there is uh, another one from the early 2000s. I think this is 2003. You better not be saying Cabin Fever. Cabin Fever, God yeah. God fucking damn it, that movie. So in 2003, we have Cabin Fever fever where someone is like they're Ugh. infected with a virus and they start shaving their legs but they're actually shaving their skin off Colin looks really happy that I'm talking about that right now but it's a classic trope that stretches from you know the 1970s on up wild when you think of a bathtub it's this thing where it's just like it represents calm serenity so of course a horror movie has to attack that and that's how we get bathtub scenes oh by the way we get another uh, commercial break which has that big loud bam sound that's kind of scary so far, how you feeling? Spooky or is it funny? It's not spooky. It's funny. Yeah, me too. 
It's kind of scary there's, though. Uh, there's not there's not nothing scary about this. It's fun. It's it's fun that it's it's making all these references because it, it starts with the evil dead thing and then now it's kind of like the thing meets alien. So it's just a bunch of movies that I like and but they're having fun with it in a bebop way. We rejoin Spike and Ed and Adorable Ein and they're testing out the goggles again. The goggles that we've seen in so many episodes that make faces magically transform and now they finally have a practical use. They have infrared sensors which can actually Read heat signatures. Now, if you need any proof of how good the voice acting of Ed is from Melissa Flan, it's this next scene. Can you see me? That's fine. And just like a stupid horror movie, Ed and Ayn run away on their own, separating the party. We're on to lesson three, which of course is Ed and Ayn, but you know, Ed is the one doing the narration. She mentions that it's August 6th, Sky Day. I couldn't find any info on what that meant. Uh, Anyway, Ed's entire lesson is if you see a stranger, follow him. Good advice, small child. Very good advice. It's actually just fun to watch Ed goofing off and listening to Fawn's acting. And we'll talk about this in, in the next episode when we cover the, the Japanese voice actors. But the way she switches accents randomly, she starts using a French accent without, we'll come back alive. It's just so childlike. And then we get the most tragic attack in the entire episode. Poor Ayn is walking around on his lonesome and we see an upper shot. We think it's the camera. No, 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 no. It's the point of view of the creature who drops down on Ayn and we hear a small whimper. So depressing. Now, by this point, Steve, are you, are you thinking that... This, this creature must be stopped. Maybe the humans are okay, but poor little Ayn. I mean, come on. Yeah, I am kind of wondering where this is going. I guess I guess in something like this, you wouldn't expect the cute dog to die at this point. But here we are. And I guess that makes Spike the final girl. Well, Spike goes wandering out and he finds the goggles on the ground. And he thinks that Ed has been attacked, which of course Ed has not been attacked. No, Ed's, Ed's the only one who hasn't been attacked. But like we assume that Ed has been attacked, or at least I did. Absolutely, why not? Of course. So he starts preparing for battle. He uh, brings along his handgun, a net launcher from Epic. Episode two. Yes, really. They brought along the net launcher from episode two when they were trying to catch Ayn. Uh, the flamethrower, gas grenades, and a rapier, the sword, which of course has a little bit of uncooked meat on it. And he tries to take a bite. Or I should say overcooked meat because it's too hard. When I saw that scene, and I cannot exactly articulate why, but that's when I thought Sam Raimi. There's something about having all those close-ups. Well, it's, it's the gearing up scene from Evil Dead 2 when he's Is in the right? shed. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 are two very early early 1980s like low budget horror films but they're very influential and Sam Raimi basically made these in the woods with his friends they turned out to be pretty big hits and he sort of parlayed their success into success in Hollywood and he ended up doing things like the original Spider-Man trilogy yeah and if you haven't seen any of the Evil Dead movies if you've seen Spider-Man 2 which I assume probably most people have there's that scene where Dr. Octopus wakes up he starts reaching for the instruments and and killing people Mm -hmm. that style of of zooming in on the screaming faces yeah quick zooms and it's it's very comic book like and also very inspired by the three stooges like there's there's a physicality to sam raimi's direction and he's still doing stuff today i'm not exactly sure what though we then reach lesson four which we won't learn until the end of the episode the uh, navigation computer announces that autopilot has been set for route 66 for 82 hours and that cannot be changed it sounds daunting at first but we do know that's how they end up on mars 
It kind of makes sense, you know? They set the autopilot, they all get knocked out, and then they're just gonna wake up on Mars. <laughs> but let's talk about for a second Route 66. That, of course, is a reference to the real world Route 66, which starts in Chicago and ends in the hometown of Steve Bloom, Santa Monica, California. That's 2,448 miles. It was finished in 1926, and to start up some publicity, the Highway Association actually held a foot race on the entirety of Route 66. It lasted 23 days, and I have heard many, many disturbing stories about it. Many people had their feet uh, irreparably damaged in that foot race. Some people actually sabotaged each other. That is not the point, though. The route continued in popularity thanks to the popular 1946 Bobby Troop song, which was performed by the Nat Cole Trio. Take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. Though the song would receive a number of covers over the years, thanks to its early rock sound, and I really do mean an early rock sound of Route 66. You would never guess that was a mid-40s song. It eventually inspired the 1960 TV show Route 66, though CBS paid Nelson Riddle to write a cheap rip-off of the song to avoid paying royalties. And after four years, that series was cancelled. As for the real Route 66, it too was cancelled, or I should say decommissioned, on June 26, 1985, and replaced by the I-40, which of course is the freeway system. Since then, the route has been largely left untouched, with large portions becoming undrivable to most vehicles. But perhaps the most haunting image are the myriad of gas stations and storefronts and tourist traps all designed around Route 66 that no one sees anymore. They're not torn down either. Spooky. So why did I just bring up all of that for a throwaway reference? Because how many other highways in America would you see so popular that they'll be globally referenced in an anime 15 years after they were decommissioned? Not many, my friends. That is Route 66. So, Colin, enough about your dumb highways. We should probably talk about some of the other horror influences that are at play here. And I mentioned this earlier. We have the Evil Dead slash Sam Raimi influence on the visual style, but also in the story itself, uh, there's a lot of inspiration here from Ridley Scott's Alien as well as uh, The Thing, particularly John Carpenter's version, not not the old 1950s version. So if you haven't seen Alien, uh, I mean, what one, what's wrong with you? Two... A lot of people misconstrue what Alien is about, and, and they kind of confuse it with Aliens, the sequel, which is much more action-oriented, or the later films, which again are more action-oriented, or kind of the lore and the video games and the comics and everything that popped up around it. The original Alien is about one alien, one small crew, and particularly one person, Ridley, who has to kill this one xenomorph. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of a mystery, because yeah. you don't know what it looks like. No, they, they they keep it very close to the vest here, and, you know, it's an incredibly well-done suspense film. It's probably one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Actually, I'm not even going to qualify that with probably. Fuck it. It's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Like, top five, easy. And then the other influence we have here is The Thing, which in John Carpenter's version, it's not a blob, it's more of like a tentacle thing, and it sort of attacks and possesses people in this uh, polar outpost and then it takes their form. And when it takes their form, you never know if you're actually talking to the real person or if it's the replicated alien version. So it causes all, the, it causes all this paranoia between the people that are in this isolated uh, research station in Antarctica. And specifically, when it comes to alien, I think the biggest nod is the, the flamethrower device, of course. And that's more of an alien's 
thing. But regardless, uh, the flamethrower is a definite nod to the Alien series. And then also, if you look at Spike's little tracker thing, it has the same setup as the one in Alien that, that helps them track the alien. If I can piggyback off of that, I think the reason that uh, the thing and Alien are obvious references is because Spike has weapons and he's going to go fight the monster. Most other slasher movies, that just doesn't happen. But in Alien and the Thing, they are actual soldiers. The Thing has a bomb-ass flamethrower as well. Oh, so. it does. You're right. <laughs> I didn't even consider that. So again, this is just like a, a smorgasbord of influential early 1980s, late 1970s horror. And of course, uh, the designer of the Xenomorph was H.R. Geiger, who did uh, a lot of ether. A lot of ether to get through his life. Let me get the, a few things off my chest, though, because I'm never going to be able to talk about Alien in a podcast ever again. I always hear that Alien was a slasher in outer space. That's wrong. It's not a fucking slasher. Who's telling you this? Many people many people call it a slasher in outer space. Well, whoever those people are should be lined up and shot. But I don't think it's fair to call it a slasher in space because it was done at the exact same time as the slasher. It is a formative slasher. If you want to call it a slasher, which Steve clearly does not, but if you wanted to, it was happening at the, the exact same time as the birth of the slasher. So it's not fair to say it was influenced by other works and that's where this came from. It was influenced by other sci-fi horror films, really, from like the 50s that had terrible costumes. Secondly, when people talk about Cowboy Bebop, they try to prestige it up a little bit. They're a little ashamed that they're watching a cartoon and they're an adult, right? So they go, oh, no, 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 it has many film influences, such as Alien. And they don't seem to realize that Alien, as great as a movie as it is, is not considered to be a prestigious film in the eyes of most film historians. It's a great film. I don't know about that. You might want to backtrack on that one. I don't think anyone born before 1960 would be like, oh, the prestigious art house film Alien. No, I, I think it's, for film history, in film history, it's incredibly important and is revered as such. And it's also for female representation, too. It's incredibly important. And most texts that I've read would point to that, both of those things. Then I will retract my statement. Thank you. Go ahead. However, however, I think it's so obnoxious when people have to go, no, 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 can we be up? It's not just some dumb cartoon. It has references to Alien. Like, come on, guys. Yeah, I, I don't understand that either. I think it's like a, it's something to do with television and, and film and how people feel the need like they see maybe like a cartoon or a TV series as like a lower form of art for some reason. And so they feel the need to attach the prestigious label of cinema to it, which is like, if I could be doing a jerk off motion right now, I'm doing a jerk off motion. It's the, the Sopranos. It's like uh, Goodfellas and the Godfather. Yeah. It's like well, movies. It's, it's, yeah, it's good. So it's like movies. Well, that's like <laughs> people who said, um, my favorite film of 2017 was Twin Peaks The Return, which I consider to be cinema and not television. Oh, Bitch, boy. it's a serialized television series. Stuff like that drives me nuts because it's it's literally because they can't bring themselves to assume that something like a cartoon... I'm not reading a comic book. I'm reading a graphic novel. Yeah, all this stuff. And it's it's just a way to disguise words that they think indicate like low culture, which is so shitty and stupid. Well, we better hurry up because I have to go catch a flick tonight. I really love flicks. Do you like flicks, Steve? I, enjoy I prefer it. the moving pictures, Colin. I don't know about you. Moving on, Spike, of course, uh, discovers the goggles and he puts them on and he goes and chases after the creature and right when he has the night vision on he sees that creature moving back and forth really cool animation and it forces spike to fall backwards and the glasses shatter and you're damn right I'm going to be paying attention to those goggles. If there aren't any future episodes, I'm going to be throwing a hissy fit because there's only one pair of goggles. If there were two, he would have worn both of them, right? Uh, whatever. This doesn't matter. But I love that he he throws the stinky gas and then he jumps, <laughs> jumps for cover. And he has that moment where he's like, well, I might as well have a cigarette and tries to light the cigarette with the flamethrower. Oh, yeah. J just the best moment in the entire episode, possibly. But guess what? He didn't smoke it. So it's not going on the cigarette counter. Anyway, <laughs> Spike opens up 
the door. He runs in and we don't follow him. The camera does not follow him. And then he runs out and we see the creature following him. I love that. Uh, some stellar animation on that 360 shot. Just the, the creature reacting to every single bullet. And then finally, Spike jumps over him, shoots it. <laughs> this is like a Warner Brothers cartoon at this point. <laughs> you see him burning the creature alive for like a good five seconds. And then it stops. <laughs> it just starts again. It's so good. But of course, Spike smells it. And he goes, oh, that smells familiar. Maybe he has some leftover food in the fridge. And that's when it all hits him. But most importantly, I think when we get that amazing animation that rotates around his head, where he has that realization of what's going on. Oh, yeah, he figures it out. So, Steve, you've watched him fight the creature. You've watched him burn the creature. Mm -hmm. At this point, you're still thinking space alien. Yeah, I guess, but I mean... Could you have predicted this ending? I... (laughs) I could I could not have predicted the ending is ridiculous. Amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's not a space alien unless you consider a Ganymede lobster that's been sitting in a fridge for a year to be a space alien. But uh yeah, it's I don't know what it is. If it's like the actual lobster itself just turned into this primordial ooze, or if it's like the lobster rotted and then like whatever fungus popped up like spawned this horrible beast like i don't know what it is i think whatever's in the fridge is the lobster whatever is uh running around is like it's it's next generation of whatever it is the final form of the gamamede rock lobster hey by the way do you think that uh you know what was that uh last episode when ed was fishing because they were in ganamede right and and they had that weird creature that came up and snipped it you think that was the rock lobster no i think that i think they would have recognized it as such. I think it was just uh, I was just a regular fish. Maybe it was a rock lobster. I don't know. Also funny, I never thought about this before, but this totally proves my theory about like things evolving in outer space just like Vicious's bird. So there you go. It's canon. We should probably talk a little bit about the lobster and the rock lobster. I did a little bit of research about this because I'm sure a million people saw on Twitter and on Facebook did you know that the lobster is immortal? <laughs> now here's the, here's the myth. There is no record of a natural death for a lobster. That's true. That's partially true. Because the male lobsters usually live to be 35 or 50. But why do they die if they don't, you know, naturally die? If they don't just have, I don't know what sort of natural cause you would ever associate with the lobster. Here's what happens though. They either get eaten by humans or by another predator or maybe a rock falls on them. I don't know what the fuck happens to a lobster in the, the ocean. But they are always molting. You know, they're, they're, they're giving themselves a new shell. A new lease on life. But eventually they run out of energy for molting. And without a new shell, that means that they catch a bacterial infection. And so the majority of lobsters that, you know, don't die from being eaten or having, I don't know, harpoon being shot through them, they die from having a bacterial infection. And yes, that also includes the rock lobsters. Spike figures out that, you know, the, the fridge is, is causing the problems here. Although the alien thing is still running around the ship. It's not in the fridge. So I don't understand like what getting rid of the fridge does necessarily, but he determines that that's what he needs to do. Well, you saw when he opened up that door, that was terrifying. Whatever yeah, that was. it was all the, the, the glowy fungus. So he turns off the ship's gravity so he doesn't have to like you know drag it around this is good because he's he's basically trying to kick it out into space like open up the the whole door or whatever and knock it into space and so he turns off the gravity and then there's all these shots of like people like floating around and stuff well and he gets bit himself yes when he's when he's being almost sucked into space or whatever yeah yeah so he opens up the door he's being sucked into space and he gets bit and then the fridge goes out and it's so dramatic it is it is very dramatic and then he just kind of clunks against the door and then it just shows everybody sort of like floating around and then you see in space the fridge is floating through space and twirling around and like the little sparkles of whatever's been inside and then the song from the nutcracker is playing the waltz from the nutcracker before we talk about the song real quick 
I do want to just mention that that one moment where the, the, the fridge is bouncing back towards Spike and the door slightly opens. I don't know why, but it always gets me. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no Spike, you have to shut the door. Now, like you mentioned about the, the ending scene, uh, the song is not from Cowboy Bebop. It is not by Yoko Kano. It is written by Kilter Ilich Tchaikovsky. And if you've seen The Nutcracker, you've definitely heard it. This is the song from The Waltz of the Flowers. It is the second act of the ballet. Now, it's kind of funny that we're seeing it here in this cartoon because it was also made popular in Disney's Fantasia. Prior to that, it was a relatively obscure work when it premiered in 1892 in Russia, of course. And it was mostly forgotten for about eh, 50 years. And then it was thrown into Disney's Fantasia, where it became popular ever since. And it caused sort of a resurgence of interest in the Nutcracker. And now they perform them every single Christmas. And let me tell you, I've actually seen the Nutcracker. Have you ever seen the ballet of the Nutcracker, Steve? I think everybody's had to go to the Nutcracker. Everybody's parents drags them to it. Uh, dear God, is born. As children, yeah. Nothing, nothing of interest Not in for it. me, not for me. Garbage. Now here's a fun fact about Tchaikovsky. He lived a pretty miserable life. He was forced to stay in the closet due to a social climate before dying of cholera. It all ties together, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. This whole thing feels kind of like goofy and random, but it's also, we've seen a lot of nods to 2001 A Space Odyssey, and this is, to me, it feels like another one of those because there's that whole Blue Danube waltz scene in 2001 where you see like the space station kind of rotating around and then they're just playing that waltz. So it, it feels like it's it's another kind of nod to that, which is fun too because, you know, 2001 is a very serious movie and this is such a goofy episode. <laughs> So it's it's kind of a fun little riff there. At this point, everybody's unconscious and just sort of like floating around while this waltz plays. Except for Ed, who I forgot wasn't bitten at this point. I just assumed that she was bitten. And then there's this throwback to the beginning of the episode where we see Ed napping and like pretending to eat food, presumably because she's hungry, because they don't have any money, because they don't have any bounties. And she's having the same food dream, but this time she rolls over and grabs the monster and then just eats it. <laughs> so stupid. It's it's pretty dumb and then that's pretty much it we just you just see this the fridge floating in space and then that and then, and then the moral of the story is like clean your fridge they don't even yeah yeah don't leave food in the fridge and here's the thing we don't get to see a space cowboy it just says the end mm -hmm. and it's weird because if i didn't know that we had more episodes of this podcast to record i would just assume that it was a very mean way to end the entire series oh it'd be brilliant i love it you know my fan theory is that they really all die in this moment no not really i have so much i want to say about this episode but steve You've been digging in the depths of Aaron and Movie Database and Funimation.com. Can you tell us what the other people thought about episode 11, Toys in the Attic? Sure, Colin. I love arbitrary numerical values assigned to art. Over at Funimation, this episode received four and a half stars. Hooray. That's pretty much in line with uh, the usual. No, it's actually above average. Uh, a little bit above average? A little bit. Well, and on IMDb, it got a 7.2, which is in the range of, you know, standard IMDb rating. Now, Spike's cigarette counter, That's mine, yeah. Let's talk about it. You stay away from that cigarette counter because I'm saying it's staying at 7. He did not smoke. There was no puff. That's true. He tried. God bless him for it. But Steve, we got a lot of good iron in here. A little bit of scary iron, if you ask me. What do you say about this good pooch? In this episode. Uh, well, you know, he, he went through a lot of adversity in this episode, which is something I can respect. So the only numerical value that I can assign to him is Sven! I'm sorry, what is that? Sven! I don't know what that is. It's German for 10, you asshole. I don't know, Steve. What do we got right here, though? We have to go to the Bounty County 
technically one of the crew members solved the problem. There's no bounty to be had. There was a, you, If you solve a problem, that's not a bounty. If I tie my shoes in the morning, did I complete two bounties? No. If you eat another alien life form, maybe. There's no bounty on the aliens. Zero bounties. Well, Steve, what say you? What did you think about episode 11, Toys in the Attic? It was fun. I mean, it's clearly like a throwaway, goofy episode. I mean, the, the characters were awesome, and uh, it's just fun. It's a fun episode with fun little references here and there, and it moves at a brisk pace, and the ending is so goddamn stupid that I can't help but love it, but yeah, it's, it's silly, it's goofy, it's inconsequential, but enjoyable nonetheless. Now, where you are on episode 11, I'm going to start asking you this, Steve. I'm going to ask you, we're going to have lower than average, we're going to have medium, and we're going to have higher than average. So far, where are you putting this? You're making me juggle a lot of different rankings here. I, I don't know, I think this is... <sighs> It's hard to say because this is another like monster of the week type of episode. I I found it immensely entertaining. So I'd say this is better than average because at this point in the show, I feel like the show's really hit its stride. So yeah, better than average. Oh yeah, me too. Absolutely better than average. And it's because we finally have all four crew members and they can really bounce off each other and they have their own unique personalities. But I do want to touch on the fact that when we open this up, I said it. Kunihiro Mori, the director of episode three. Not a fan. Total 360 when it comes to this one. That's not 360. It's a 180, actually. I take that back. But I just, I, what I love about this episode so much is that it really does a good job of building tension and intrigue because you have no idea what's what's going on. Just like a classic horror movie, but it never loses how funny it is. It's just a big goof off. And also, I love all the animation that they reuse. Did you notice that when Spike was about to go out and he reload the handgun, that was the exact same shot taken from episode five? I did know that because your nerd ass tweeted it out. By the way, follow Colin on Twitter at Dr. Karate Chop for more Cowboy Bebop screenshots. For me, I just I can't believe how many places this episode goes. Think about the very beginning, where it's a little bit dark and a little bit scary. We learn about the individual characters through their lessons, which means we actually do get a lot of character development in here. But the thing that blows me away the most is think about the very beginning of the episode, when you're seeing this, this weird night vision shot. Could you have ever, ever have guessed that it would end with a ballet of sleeping bodies floating through space and a fridge that is shooting magic into the stars. I This goes places, man. Even if you were not a Cowboy Bebop fan, I think this would really impress most people. I think like more horror movies could, you know, maybe borrow some ideas from here, even though, of course, it's borrowing from other horror movies. The final sequence is so irreverent and dumb, it makes me wonder if they just thought about that sequence. Like, wouldn't it be funny if we just killed everyone on the Bebop uh, because they all got food poisoning? Like, that, it seems like a, like a throwaway joke idea that someone had when they were, like, stoned, and then they just kind of worked the episode backwards from that. I would not be surprised if someone just wanted to have that dumb ending. I would not be surprised if that was actually true. But that's gonna have to do it for one of my favorite episodes ever, episode 11, Toys in the Attic. You say that about every episode. No, it's true. But Steve, where can people reach you on the internet? I'm so glad you asked, Colin. You can reach me on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. Make sure you check out OptimismVaccine.com. That's where this podcast is hosted. And at Optimism Vaccine, we have all kinds of articles, other podcasts, Podcast. If you like TV, if you like movies, you like pop culture, you like weird shit. We even have some stuff on other anime, I think. I'm pretty sure. I'll have to double check on that. There is a link in the description of this very podcast that you are listening to. Click that link. Welcome to the iTunes page for Optimism Vaccine. Please rate and review this podcast. Give us five stars, quick written review. Hey, I love Cowboy Bebop. Thanks, guys. That's all you need to do is it makes our podcast more visible. And the more visible we are, the more 
stuff we can do for you. If you like this podcast, give us some love on iTunes, and hey, maybe when we're done, I'll watch some other anime. Well, you can reach me on the internet on Twitter at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. Karate Chop. You can follow my video game stuff at youtube.com slash video games are dumb or just go to videogamesardumb.com. But that's going to have to do it for this episode. For Steve Cuff, I'm Colin Tanner. See ya, Space Cowboy. Next week, we're doing double the episodes. That means double the podcast. Double the nitpicks. Double the useless knowledge. (laughs) Double the knowledge that everyone appreciates. Double the negatives. Next episode, Jupiter Jazz. You isn't not gonna won't never miss it.